Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by Operate, a new tech startup investment and community building platform based right here in Southern California. There are a number of amazing founders already in our Operate family. So if you're interested in meeting them or you're looking for help with your startup, want an opportunity to work with the next generation of high growth companies around here, or just want to be part of this community, you can go to operatestudio.com to learn more. I'm really excited to, we, we reconnected not too long ago after a meeting several years ago, but really excited to have JP Latour with me on the show today. And before we get to hear from JP, let me give you a quick introduction uh, to him. He is the co-founder and CEO of Kalent, which is a managed service provider for growing software teams. And he's working in an area uh, called DevOps and containerization, which I will let him uh, explain to the audience. We met several years ago when he was really formulating what ultimately became Kalent, his idea. And we met through a program called Founder Institute based here. Um, that has chapters now actually all over the world. Uh, he really, I, from my perspective, is the classic entrepreneur. He was in, as I would say to him, you know, in the right room at the right time where people were talking about a new idea. He got fascinated with it. He started to really dig in and, and understand it and saw, wow, I can be an early entrant into a market that I think is going to grow really, really rapidly. Let me go find my way to build a business and compete. And so we'll talk some about that today. He is a Southern Californian. Uh, he left for a while. He uh, is back, which is great um, that he's doing it here. And uh, the other thing I think JP will have a lot of perspective on is that he built a virtual distributed company from the beginning. And he did this several years ago. Obviously, that has become a very common trend over the last nine months. Um, so we'll talk about what he's learned, what he's seen out there amongst his customers and, and the market that he serves as well. JP, thanks for joining me. Great to have you here on the show today. Great to be here. Great to see you, Kerry. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's jump off with uh, the the sort of founding story. So Kalen's been around now for several years. Uh, I know you've made some adjustments, which is very common, uh, as we entrepreneurs know along the way, or pivots is the the, the term at times. But, you know, tell me and tell us the founding story, how, how this came to be. Wow. Okay, sure. Um, so I co-founded the company in August of 2015. As we were going through, I think the second half of FI and Carrie was one of the mentors at FI here in Orange County. That's how we met. Prior to Kalen, uh, as I was sharing with him earlier, I had just graduated from UC San Diego. I've been working as an IT consultant. I'd started a, uh, a cloud hosting business. We had some data center space in San Diego and stuff like that. And I was at a hosting convention. And at that hosting convention, I was talking to some other hosting business owners and somebody was talking about containers and Docker. And I didn't know anything about it. So I went home later that night. I started doing research. I went to Docker's website, started reading their documentation. And I got really fascinated and curious with it. And that basically kicked off the genesis of the idea for Kalen. And 
we went through many pivots along the way before arriving at the business model that we're in right now, um, which I'd be happy to talk about a little bit as well. But that was basically kind of the precursor and the genesis behind Kaling. Great. Well, that's, that's a great place to start. So I, I love this idea that you're at a, an event or in, in a room, as I, I said, and, and all of a sudden something just sparks you. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned you have this really uh, high curiosity and fascination with new emerging technologies. Yeah. You, you know, those of us, I've, I've been around a lot of early technology for a long time what what was it about this you know containerization what was it about that that really got you to jump in versus things that maybe are are interesting and curious but you say i'm not sure yet or you know let, let you take a technology that maybe you you were interested in but didn't jump in on so what have you reflected at all to say like what was it about docker or containerization that said yep this is why i need to go do this to me, it felt as though it was going to be as dis as disruptive or more disruptive uh, as virtualization was mm -hmm. as far as compute workloads. Mm -hmm. And I saw a future where this was going to be the preferred way of building and orchestrating applications. Mm -hmm. And it's largely proved out to be true over the last mm -hmm. five years. Now, mm -hmm. Kubernetes and Docker and containers are basically ubiquitous. Yep. Pretty much every modern software company is already running them or they're on kind of that adoption curve and they're trying to get to a place where they're running them in production. But back in 2015, this was a technology that a lot of people still hadn't heard of. Mm -hmm. um, even though Google and some other companies were kind of running it and building primitives around the technology, that's how Kubernetes was, was born. It was initially called Borg and that was kind of their project for running containers inside Google. Mm -hmm. But I, I just thought that, you know, after really reading the documentation and kind of understanding the genesis behind con containerization as a technology that it was going to be something that was going to become um it, it was sorely needed basically it was kind of the next evolution uh you could call it as we were going through this fundamentally you know uh disruptive kind of pattern from on-prem to cloud you know um from bare metal to virtualization and i kind of saw this as being the next evolution of that mm -hmm. very good so you you launch in in 2015, mm -hmm. uh, you were early. I'm sure mm -hmm. you had some moments where you said, oh, we may be too early. Uh, and you know, I had, I've had several people along my career who, who reminded me that uh, in many respects, being early is the same as being wrong. And then, then you have to sort of survive long enough to that timing lining up. Right, the market development, the market adoption, lining up with your vision and and your uh, early recognition that this is likely to happen. So, uh, any of those moments in the in the early year or two where you said, uh, "We, you know, this this looks like it has a lot of promise, but it may not actually uh, bear out." Yeah, absolutely. We so when my co-founder Stefan joined the company. Uh, with me a couple months after I founded it, we set to work on building what we thought was a solution for the biggest problem that existed, which is how do you actually deploy containers into your own cloud environment? 
there were platforms out there that were like platform as a service type things like Heroku and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But really back in 2015 and 2016, there was just a bunch of primitives. You had to kind of roll your own cluster and figure out how you were going to make it production ready. And so the idea that we kind of started working on was to build a containers as a service platform where you could bring your images, bring your containers, and then we would help you deploy it in a best practice way into your own cloud environment. And initially we started with AWS, but to, to get to your point, you know, the first probably 12 to 18 months was filled with every potential customer conversation, every potential early initial adopter conversation. A lot of the commentary was, you know, what's a container? You know, mm -hmm. why should we be using containers? I think we're okay the way that we're running our application right now. And so that's, you know, after a series of those conversations, you do begin to realize maybe we are a little bit too early. Maybe this is the wrong idea. Maybe this isn't a big enough pain point yet because the adoption really wasn't there at the time. Yeah. So let's, let's go a little bit deeper on that. So now, you know, five years in, if you look back at that, what, what would you do differently to try to line up your service to the market sooner? Um, it's a really good question. Well, I can think of a lot of, I can think of a lot of good examples of companies that were early in the space that were working on really hard problems that existed that did a really good job. Um, you know, eventually there were a number of other people that kind of joined into that same containers as a service space that we were in mm -hmm. and some were successful and some were not so successful. I think the thing for me is, you know, we made some technology decisions early on. There were a number of competing tools and products out there that were in charge of container orchestration. And I think one of the technology missteps that we made early on was not looking more closely at Kubernetes because we actually didn't support Kubernetes hmm. until late 2018 when the writing was already on the wall, if I'm being honest. And we initially chose Docker Swarm. And anybody out there, any CTO listening that's ever played with Docker Swarm will tell you that it didn't really work very well. It was very unruly. It was difficult. And you know, we finally did get it working. And we had, I think, a fully fleshed out product that, that supported workloads running Docker Swarm. But it ended up falling out of favor. It was mm -hmm. kind of like the container orchestration wars thinking back to you know the 80s VHS versus Betamax mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know Betamax lost even yep. though maybe it was a better technology. So that's one example, but there, there's other examples too. So on that, I mean, if you think about advice to other entrepreneurs, uh, maybe building a, a managed service solution like you, you have, I mean, do, you, do you say, hey, don't pick a technology to, to sort of build on? Or how, how would you advise somebody who's maybe looking to, to do a similar type of business, maybe in a different area, with regard to how to decide where, what to build your technology? Like, you know, are you, obviously Snowflake has done well now uh, yeah. in, in cloud data, but, you know, I, one of my friends was an early, early uh, advocate for it. Uh, you know, there's potentially risk there if there's somebody else that comes along. Sure. Um, you, you have to make bets. I mean, there's no way around it. You, you have to make bets. You have to do your research. Um, and ultimately, 
you know, you only have so many resources. You have a finite amount of money and bandwidth and time as an early stage, you know, as an early founder and entrepreneur. And you kind of just hope that you're making the right choices because if you make the wrong ones, and this is the same for a lot of different things, key yep. hires, yep. Um, technology decisions, um, things of that nature, then it can end up crippling the company and ultimately leading to disaster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, do you, do you feel like you, you could have benefited maybe by talking to more customers early on? Are there, are there things that you think about and go, you know, maybe we shouldn't have tried to push a particular solution on people. We should have helped them maybe in an earlier stage, do something that eventually led to where we were, were trying to go. Yeah, I think at a certain point we we maybe should have pulled the ripcord um, and reassessed the the landscape because probably by mid twenty seventeen and uh, somebody's going to shoot me if you know my recollection is is a little bit off, but probably by mid twenty seventeen, I'd say that Kubernetes was really becoming more mainstream. Um, they had a really really good community around it in a way that Docker Swarm did not, because Docker Swarm was fundamentally being built by one company, which was mm -hmm. Docker. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we we probably could have seen that a little bit earlier than we ended up seeing it. But it's okay because that mistake ended up kind of taking the company in a different direction, which is where we are now. Mm -hmm. And where the company is right now is we're very focused on being kind of the premier consulting and managed services company for technology companies that want to adopt cloud native and look at technologies like Kubernetes and serverless and are running on cloud providers that we're partnered with like AWS, for example, where we're an advanced consulting partner and Google Cloud, where we're a GCP Advantage partner. We just actually this morning joined the CNCF, which I'm really, really excited about. CNCF is the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Mm. Um, and that's been kind of a goal of mine for the last year is to join it. And then we'll shortly be uh, hopefully a Kubernetes certified service provider. So that's that will great. really kind of cement our relationship within the community. And we're working on a bunch of interesting open source projects internally right now that we're incubating that we plan to give, you know, release to the community and maintain and stuff like that. So I think, you know, Open source is treacherous as a as a as a business mm -hmm. model as a path. You know, some companies have done it really really well. Like HashiCorp is a mm -hmm. phenomenal example of this. Um, but we that's another decision that maybe we could have considered earlier too as well. Why not go the open source route? Why build you know a SaaS product that's closed source? So these are the things that I wish I had thought about more deeply back in 2015 and 2016. Well, thank you for sharing that. So I think that takes me to sort of my next question, which would be, if I'm an aspiring entrepreneur, let's say I have a product idea, technical founder or even a non-technical and a business founder, I see a problem. I think there's a software product solution to it. Mm -hmm. how, how do you view yourself as a, as a advisor, consulting partner in those early stages when I need to make some architectural decisions? Yeah. I, customer discovery is super important. Um, it, it, the importance of it cannot be overstated. And, you know, there's many 
better entrepreneurs in the community than me that have you know written books and stuff like that. Like you think about Lean Startup and mm-hmm. um, uh, there's some other good books that are not uh, the uh, Osterwalder books, for example, those are really good too. I would say just go out, have conversations, try to find customers before you write a single line of code. Mm. Um, you know, really kind of treat those initial customers as your board essentially, and you know, ask them their input and make sure that what you're because you know, twenty percent of what you build represents eighty percent of the value. I think that really mm-hmm. holds true, even though it's a little cliche. And just make sure that, you know, you're really, really laser focused on a specific problem and that there is a business opportunity behind that problem and, you know, figure out scaling units and, you know, unit economics and things like that early as well. Because nowadays, I think early stage investors want a better handle on that. Um, so that would be kind of my, my advice for, for early stage entrepreneurs that think that they've found a problem. Oh, there's there's a lot of gold, a lot of gold in there. So thank you for for sharing that. And I think you know a lot of uh, well earned wisdom. So as you think about your business, you know, one of the things I I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs about because we we see a lot of those here at Operate every day. To your point, are they clear on the problem? Is it a problem that people are interested in having solved? And more importantly, are they interested in pain to have that solved in a way that that is uh can you capture sufficient value right i talk about that uh you 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 may uh be able to solve the problem but does all the value that comes from that get accrued back to the customer or can you actually capture some of that so as you if you think about your business and what value your customers look to you to provide how how do you think about that and in your mind yeah great point in in my mind, you know, a big part of the value that we offer our clients is we have a partnership model. So we call our clients really partners. Mm-hmm. And the way that we partner with them is through embedding teams of Kalen engineers with them currently. And we have a huge library of, you know, templates and IP that we've created that we bring kind of day one with us to help um, enshrine best practices in their cloud infrastructure and the way that they do deployments and the way that they design and architect CI/CD pipelines. And we'll come in, we do discovery with them. We do the planning, we do the road mapping, we do the solution architecture, and then we set about implement implementation with the client. And this is through a really deep collaboration with wh- whoever our point people are uh, inside the client, right? This is often product and engineering teams. And really, we're there to add, hopefully, fuel to the fire, um, because what we find is a lot of our clients, they fall into generally one of two categories. Either they're, you know, they have the, the skill sets on their team that really understand cloud native, they really mm-hmm. understand cloud engineering and cloud infrastructure and automation, but they don't have the bandwidth because mm-hmm. they're focused elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And or, is that because they're just like they're full stack and they they sort of understand it all, but they need to focus in a particular part of the stack or? or, uh... My my observation is it's usually the senior most guys on the engineering team. So typically directors, VPs, even the CTO are the guys that actually have the experience with Mm. these sorts of things, but Mm -hmm. their time is also the most valuable. And so they cannot afford past a certain point to be spending so much time on these things. And so- 
this is what necessitates hiring. But I guess zooming out, I was going to bring up a second, like kind of mm-hmm. archetyped, but I'll step back for a second. For 99% of product companies, DevOps, cloud native, cloud infrastructure are not core competencies. Mm-hmm. They don't need to be, but their product and their relationship with their end users and their customers does need to be core competency. Mm-hmm. And so in partnership with Kalen, hopefully we're coming in and allowing them to focus on what's really important, which is building products, building features, you know, talking with customers and less focused on cloud infrastructure and you know, things that basically don't move the product forward. Um, Of course, it's 99% or 95%. I don't know exactly how to handicap this because the remainder of the companies uh, that are out there, it does need to be core competency, right? So you think about, you know, the AWSs, the Googles, the Twitters, the Twilios of the world. For companies like that, you know, they're oftentimes a part of their team has to be essentially an infrastructure company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. But the, I think getting clear, I mean, the, the, the part of this conversation that's so valuable is just that idea of getting really clear about what is it that we are going to be best at in the world. Yeah. And almost the more narrow you can make that, the better, because I think that, especially early on, that gives you the best chance of actually becoming that, of actually delivering that. And I think we're in this really interesting phase where increasingly, and I think the change is happening rapidly, where I I have to understand as the entrepreneur, what am I going to be great at? And then everything else I need to sort of handicap, to borrow your word, how good at this we need to be in the own it, rent it, outsource it, uh, et cetera, and finding that combination. And that's a big part of what we try to do with founders is, is help them get that clarity and not, for example, feel like I have to hire people to do all these things that sit in my team, on my payroll, because you can't be an expert at everything, particularly in the early stages. Yep, absolutely. So, okay, so your first uh, client, your client archetype you're talking about, what's the other one as you think about it? Because I just, I can envision so many companies that I deal with who just, I mean, even as you think about CICD, that is a culture change in a big way. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to have been in some waterfall development environments, uh, you know, and agile is, is not even what you're talking about, right? So uh that that could be just religious culture change in some cases yeah that that's certainly part of it you know hopefully we're coming in and we're breaking down silos and we're really adhering to what devops is all about from the cultural perspective because mm-hmm. devops fundamentally any purist will tell you it's not you know it's not tools it's not a title it's not mm-hmm. any of those things it's, it's kind of a mindset and that's it's right. a methodology and so we certainly bring that and, and try to inject that as much as possible, or as I should say, as much as our clients will allow us to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're opinionated, and that's part of the reason that our clients do work with us is because so many of them come to us and they see the value in not having to make those mistakes. And for us to be able to articulate to them what patterns we've seen work, what we see as being best practices that are emerging within the community or are well-established and what the anti-patterns are. And so, the, you know, we help them kind of navigate the landmines and the ecosystem. 
And, you know, we work with clients ranging from early stage venture backed startups all the way through to fortune 500 companies now. And we've seen a lot of different scenarios along that kind of maturity scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, early stage startups are a lot more sophisticated than later That's stage right. companies. Let, let me tell you. Um, but there's a lot of value I think that we provide because we've seen this problem and we've seen it dozens and dozens of times and we've solved all these myriad challenges. Whereas a lot of these companies are encountering problems and challenges for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And especially with early stage companies, you know, time is at such a premium and we're able to come in and basically kind of accelerate their time to value, which is, Mm -hmm. is in and of itself hugely valuable so that they can focus on what's really important within their businesses. Yeah. Oh, it's, I think that that's critical, right? That recognizing that as a founder, recognizing that this is necessary for me to deliver the value to the end customers, but that I, I need to rely on a trusted partner, not develop this expertise myself. And I mean, it, it, in some respects, this could go the same as, you know, building my accounting and finance infrastructure and saying, okay, do I need uh, to develop this as a core competitive expertise? No, I need to do it well, because if I don't do it well, I could mess up cash flow, I could run out of money, I could uh, misfile and get a penalty. There's all kinds of problems that could ensue, but uh, I don't need an A plus in my own expertise in this, I need a great partner, right? That's where you guys, I would say in many of the application environments, uh, you guys need to do a, a great job, but it doesn't, you don't need to, uh, the client doesn't need to, to have this be the best in the world or else they should be in that business, right? They should be a competitor to you or an infrastructure company or, or something like that. But, but getting right. clear, that, like, getting that clarity is so key, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I sort of mentioned this out of the gate. You guys started as a distributed virtual, as you said, remote first team many, many years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, walk me through how that experience has been. I mean, how was it five years ago versus now? Well, it's interesting. So when we started the company, initially it was just myself and my co-founder. And he was living in Asia at the time. He's originally from the UK. And of course, I was here in California. Um, And then we, subsequent to FI, we uh, got accepted into an accelerator. So we went through Entrepreneur's Roundtable Accelerator, better known as ERA, Mm -hmm. which is based in New York City. They're only in one city, so they're not, you know, like a 500 or a YC or Mm -hmm. anything with like different, you know, cities and different cohorts and things like that. Um, we went through that program in summer of 2016. We were part of batch number 11 or cohort 11. And for that, myself and my co-founder came together and we were living together in New York. Um, and that was really, really fun. That experience, mm-hmm. if you haven't been through it as, uh, as an entrepreneur, I would suggest anybody, you know, uh, go through an accelerator and, and do it cause it's really intense and, um, it's really, really fun. And so we were there for about five or six months. And at the end of the accelerator, you know, he went back home and I went back home. And by that time we were just a team of like three or four people. I, we had hired mm-hmm. one employee or two employees at that point. 
And it just made sense to me. And I was looking at other companies that came before us, like uh, the one that stands out for me is GitLab, mm -hmm. right? They, at the time, I think they were still really small, but to me, they felt really big. They were like 50 or hundred employees or something mm -hmm. probably back in 2016. And it just it intuitively made sense that you can find the best talent anywhere. It doesn't need to be, or it shouldn't be all kind of, you know, in one geographic region or within one city. Um, and it really gives you freedom and flexibility to be able to kind of run your company um, the way that you want to run it. Now there's challenges that, that come along with that decision, but it just intuitively made sense. And we were forced into it a little bit just by virtue of the fact that myself and my co-founder were half a world away. And then, you know, he later did move to the United States, but that came later. So that, that was kind of how we got started with it. And we've been a remote first distributed team. Um, ever since and now we have many more employees and and many more regions and, and mm -hmm. things like that so think back to those first couple people that you added uh either of the those early couple in new york people that you found through era or did you start your remote global hiring uh you know openness then um we, I think early on, we decided that we would pretty much hire anybody um, anywhere. Mm -hmm. I don't mean anybody, but, you know, qual qualified yes. top yes. tech talent. Yes. Um, and we weren't really thinking, you know, about New York City um, specifically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I came back to Irvine. You know, I've always been based for the most part in Orange County. We did have an office at one point in New York City. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the decision was, the die was pretty much was cast. We had just decided that it just made perfect sense and we were going to kind of hire and, and be, you know, build a remote first distributed team. So a lot of my audience uh, is just sort of waking up to this global workforce, mm -hmm. uh, as far as that's an opportunity uh, that can be daunting. That can be scary. I mean, how do I determine that this is the right person that I can't see face to face in this environment. Maybe I mean, there may be people you you've never met face to face in your company, as an example. Um, what what tips do you have? What what have you found that works for even how you can determine that somebody is the right uh, capability and culture fit? You, I think, as a as a founder, as a CEO, as a CTO whatever your role is, you have to make a commitment to it because it's gonna, especially if you're coming from a place where everybody has been working out of one city or a couple of different cities and you've got centralized offices, it's gonna feel really weird. Mm -hmm. We had the benefit of basically starting from scratch. And so that's the way it always was for us, but I can imagine trying to flip a switch. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's probably gonna be a little bit painful at first, but I think it's totally worth it and obviously, with the 2020 COVID situation, it's really just accelerated this change that's happening that was gonna happen anyway. I'm relatively convinced of that. Mm. You have to build a remote culture, super important. You don't want your team feeling like they're on an island and they're stranded and they're isolated. People are emotional creatures and they mm -hmm. all have needs. And some people prefer to be left alone some people and work independently some people prefer to work as part of a team 
and they want a lot more FaceTime and a lot more attention and they thrive on human interaction. And you're going to continue to see that play out, but you're going to have to address it as part of a remote workplace. And so there's tools, of course, that help with this, you know, tools that everybody's familiar with, like Zoom, what we're using right now, Slack, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's other tools that we use, and I'd be happy to share some examples. So for uh, for daily virtual standups, we don't actually do standups anymore in a mm-hmm. traditional sense. We, for the most part, use a tool called Status Hero, and there's other kind of asynchronous mm-hmm. standup tools, but that's one to, to check out if you're running engineering teams in particular. Um, it's nice because if you have people in far-flung places trying to find 15 or 20 minutes on everybody's calendar that perfectly lines up can be really, really challenging. Um, but to be able to orchestrate those check-ins and summaries and stuff like that through Slack is much, much easier. Um, we recently adopted a tool called, it's a platform rather, called Bonusly. And this is something that basically generates points. Um, Everybody has a point balance every month. And Mm. it's about creating a culture of recognition Mm. and not top-down recognition, but peer-to-peer recognition. And so when somebody does something that somebody else, anybody else on the team, whether they're from the same department or a different department wants to recognize, they can, you know, it's public, it's piped into a Slack channel. We have it called a shout out and everybody celebrates and it's additive, right? So you can Mm -hmm. add on to people's bonuses and get more points and it's really fun and the points are redeemed. They have a monetary value. Um, So that's one thing that we've done and I've seen it drive a lot more engagement Mm -hmm. because for me, that's, you know, that's always been kind of at the forefront of my mind building a remote first team is how do you keep people engaged? And if I was coming from a place where, you know, everybody was showing up to an office, you know, nine to five, nine to six, nine to seven, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and then all of a sudden everybody's working remotely. You might think about, well, you know, how, all of a sudden, how do I, you know, how do I know what people are doing? How do mm-hmm. I trust people? Um, and I think you have to create a team environment because again, it goes back to building that remote culture. You don't want people feeling like they're a team of one or they're off on their own. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to micromanage them either. So I'm uh, probably just ranting at this point, but anyway, that's some, that's- there's some good, yeah, there's some good, good thoughts in there for sure. I, I mean, I think the, the one thing you, you mentioned this earlier, like starting from scratch uh, in many respects is probably easier. People know walking in, uh, this is what I'm signing up for. Uh, the, and, and maybe they're experienced it before, or they're kind of eyes wide open, knowing what they're coming into experience. COVID has been interesting because that's, this is thrust almost every knowledge work type of job into this scenario. And I, I don't know that we, we have a great sense of what's going to happen on the other side. I think there's a lot of people that believe we're going to end up in these very hybrid scenarios where maybe it's, uh, offices are half time work remote work from home is is half time and that we find this middle ground and I think it probably ends up being this continuum of people can choose and be a little bit more intentional about I can choose I want to be in an office five days a week and there will be a company that will fit that work style for me I want a hybrid environment I want a fully virtual environment where I can work anytime, any place, anywhere. Yeah. And people will have a lot more active choice. And at least that's that's my perspective on it. And 
um, it, it'll be, I think a lot of it near term has been risk management on behalf of companies in deciding how they want to handle it, that that will change um, once safety and risk is a little bit clearer. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Kerry. Um, by the way, there's two other things that I, I should have mentioned. I would encourage everybody that is building a remote team to have some fun social events. We do virtual happy hours. We're having a virtual holiday party next month um, where the entire team is going to come together. We had a virtual Halloween costume party mm. uh, last month for uh, October 31st. So do those sorts of things as well. You know, try to even though it's virtual, try to kind of bring that same sort of office camaraderie and atmosphere back into the mix. Um, and then do do all hands meetings as well. Uh, we do those once a week mm. and we do them on Tuesday mornings and they run about an hour and it's a way of basically breaking down everything that's going on within the company, you know, from mm -hmm. sales and marketing to HR, to recruiting, to engineering. Um, so those are some of the things that we've found or added over time that I think have kind of, you know, helped, but we're not, we're not there yet either. You know, we're still continuing to, to innovate and figure out new tools to use and how we can make the workplace and the culture even better. Well, I mean, the good thing is that the experimentation opportunities are high. I think it, yes. it, it allows, you know, a leader like you to really be vulnerable and say, Hey, I, I, I want to try this or allow others to suggest things. And it, it, I, I think what this has done is it, it's flattened organizations because 100%. everybody, right? Everybody is working from a very similar place. So they're working from home. You're, you're getting to see a lot more personality of people because of even just what's happening in their lives. The, the dogs, the kids, the spouses, the roommates, all these things that I think have made us more human and more connected uh, and reminded that work is not what defines us. It's a part of who we are, but it's not who we are. Right. And so to me, the silver lining of this whole thing is that these kinds of virtual environments have, have given us a deeper window into, into people when, you know, if you and I were doing this in a studio, uh, I, I get a different perspective on on who you are versus uh, doing it virtually over Zoom, even though we're we're reasonably close to each other physically. So I I look at the positive of it. That's a, sort of the optimist in me. But I agree with you. We aren't uh, we're not going to move to a world where everybody works from home 100 percent of the time and it's all figured out. And that's uh, that's scratching the the itch because we're just all we're all very different in in what we need to to fully actualize us. I, I think you're right. And I, I love what you said about bringing people, forming that connection and seeing people from a different perspective. I think you're right. I hadn't really thought about it that way, mm -hmm. but I think that's true. Yes. And I mean, and think about it and on the global scale, like that's, I think that's just fascinating that, uh, I mean, at times I get almost disappointed with some people's virtual backgrounds because, you know, yeah, that's a reflection of your personality, but like don't don't think of this as a as a judgment of of where you are or what's going on think of it as just it's a uh it, it's humanizing uh who we are where we are i mean look at me i'm in a, a spartan white office i you know that's, we, we but we both are yeah exactly that's hey that's it's working right it, it's 
what we need is sort of as entrepreneurs, we don't need a lot. We need a, you know, we need a laptop and an internet connection and we're good to go. So what are you most excited about as you look out over the next year with Kalen? This, this has been the last two years in particular, have been uh, a time, a really very exciting time for us. We've gone through a lot of growth. I think we, we hired somewhere around 20, for sure 20 plus people just this year alone. And we're looking to hire another five to eight people um, between now and the end of December. Amazing. So, you know, our business has grown, um, you know, our capabilities, the skill sets on the team, you know, what we've been doing from a partnership and alliance perspective, um, you know, some of the, you know, customer stories that have, you know, we've uh, had over the past year and some of the, you know, just general business growth, I think has been really exciting. I would like to see that continue to accelerate clearly uh, as, as a business owner. And so I think what we're trying to do is lay the foundation for how we continue the kind of growth that we've enjoyed over the last mm -hmm. couple of years. And for us, that means, you know, I think really investing a little bit more in sales and marketing, we've really underinvested there. Um, I think it means, you know, continuing to figure out, you know, the engineering team and how it scales. Um, We've made some really key hires over the last couple of months, and we're going to be introducing new offerings because currently we only have one service that we sell. It's just called a Kalent Pod, mm -hmm. um, and so you know we're thinking about you know opportunities to meet uh, customer demand and new challenges as they emerge. Um, thinking through things like compliance and security, which we kind of already cover, but you know how do we really you know, help our clients, you know, a lot of them have, you know, compliance needs like SOC 2 type 2, mm -hmm. PCI, HIPAA, um, you know, ISO 27001. So it's about, you know, I think continuing to innovate and continuing to assess what the needs of the market are and uh, just prepare for continued growth, hopefully. Very exciting. So as you mentioned uh, innovation, how do you innovate yourself? How do you keep yourself sharp in your mind? I mean, I think my team helps me a lot. Um, mm. These guys are, are way smarter than I am. Um, they really, really are domain experts and they really understand the space. And, you know, we have some, some traditions that we do, you know, we're constantly evaluating, you know, the landscape and the tools. And I think we have the benefit through the work that we do with uh, our clients, many of whom are you know, early adopters of new technology and they want to experiment and try new things and stay on that bleeding edge. And so we see things kind of, we see the future basically in some circumstances, not because we're clairvoyant, but just because we're doing so much diverse work across you know, so many different diverse clients on a daily basis that we encounter these things. And so that enables us, I think, to stay on top of you know, what's coming down the pike and what's on the cutting edge and what we should be recommending and incorporating into our practice. And so we get to play with a lot of cool technologies and a lot of cool tools. And that kind of keeps us um, on the cutting edge. We hadn't done a lot of serverless, for example, uh, about a year ago. And now we have several serverless clients. And mm -hmm. yesterday, I won't name who, but very, very major company um, they had a huge national event 
and the traffic was just off the charts and you know that was all powered by lambda on the back end so that was really exciting to see i mean mm -hmm. there was like 30 plus million https requests uh tens of millions of api calls i think there were 1200 requests per second mm -hmm. at one point to their api so it's fun to to do those sorts of things and to <laughs> figure out where things are going to break mm -hmm. and uh, how you can uh, kind of lean into um, you know, these edge cases. Super cool. Well, JP, we're, we're running up against time here on this episode of Operate. One last question I'd have for you. If you, you know, you're, you're several years into your entrepreneurial journey. Uh, as I said, you kind of had that classic story, I think, in, in how you got into this. What advice would you give yourself back uh, five years ago that probably is the same advice you'd give to an early entrepreneur now? I would say be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Um, try to be objective, which can be very, very difficult mm. um, as an entrepreneur and as somebody that's pursuing a dream and has an idea. Um, failure is okay. Failure is not a setback. Failure is a natural part of entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and you will fail over and over again. I will fail over and over again. Um, and not to treat those, uh, to treat those failures as learning experiences basically, um, and not view them as, you know, catastrophic setbacks. Great advice. Great advice. Well, well JP, thank you so much for joining me. I'm super excited with the progress and, growth and everything that you're experience, experiencing so far with, with Kalen and what's ahead, right? You, you staying out on that front edge uh, is, is hard, uh, but I think you, you've hit the, the meat of the curve as well, which is great. I think it probably feels really good to be there as you're seeing more and more people say, this is the way we need to, to operate. And so I'm so, uh, so glad we met all those years ago that you pursued it and you're seeing the, the fruits of it. And I wish you all the best and, and look forward to, to staying in touch as you uh, continue on this journey. So thanks again for sharing and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.